the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we'll talk with Mark Atterbury. He's a pastor and the author of Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous and the deadly. He'll be joining us later this hour. We'll also cover the latest economic news and uh, take a look at what's happening among the Anglicans who have dropped a proposal to reaffirm traditional marriage that a stance they had taken some years back. Well, the U.S. economy contracted, I should say, for the second quarter in a row in a second quarter of 2022, according to data released today by the Bureau of Economic Analysis. Now, despite the fact that the administration is currently saying we're not in a recession and that two consecutive um, uh, quarters in which we have uh, shrinkage does not constitute recession, that has been traditionally and technically what a recession is. In the January through March period, real gross domestic product dropped 1.6%. Uh, in the April through June period, it dropped 0.9%. The decrease, and I'm quoting from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, the decrease in real GDP reflects decreases in private inventory investment, residential fixed investment, federal government spending, state and local government spending, and non-residential fixed investment that were partly offset by increases in exports and personal consumption expenditures. Imports, which are a subtraction Uh, In the calculation of GDP increased, it said, well, the decrease in private inventory investment was led by a decrease in retail trade, many general merchandise stores, as well as motor vehicle dealers. The decrease in residential fixed investment was led by a decrease in other structures, specifically brokers commissions, according to the BEA. U.S. economy in the second quarter shrunk. President Biden said the United States is not in a recession, despite Thursday's GDP report, saying it is no surprise that the economy is slowing down amid inflation. The U.S. economy shrank in the spring for the second consecutive quarter, meeting the criterion for recession as record high inflation, higher interest rates forced consumers and businesses to pull back on spending. Gross domestic product, the um, Broadest measure of uh, goods and services produced across the economy shrank by 0.9 percent on an annualized basis in the three month period from April through June. The Commerce Department said in its first reading of the data on Thursday, um, economists expected the report to show the economy had expanded by 0.5 percent. But that did not happen. The president touted the job market, saying it remains historically strong with unemployment at 3.6 percent and more than one million jobs created in the second quarter alone. Consumer spending is continuing to grow, he said. Well, the problem is spending is increasing, but you get less for your money. The president said he met with the chairman of SK Group from Korea earlier this week, saying it is just one of the companies investing more than $200 billion in America manufacturing uh, since I took off. Office, powering an historically historic recovery in American manufacturing. My economic plan is focused on bringing inflation down, which is 
uh, renamed Build Back Better that spends billions of dollars. And many would describe the reason we're in the situation in a recession now is overspending, at least in part, by the government. But the president says his economic plan is focused on bringing inflation down without giving up all the economic gains we've made. Congress has an historic chance to do that by passing the Chips and Science Act, Inflation Reduction Act, without delay. Well, the president's comments came just days after he said the U.S. was not coming into recession. So you can choose your interpretation as to whether or not we're in a recession defined by two uh, consecutive quarters of uh, contraction, which we now have had confirmed. Well, the president said that the economy is on the right path. Also today, uh, hours after the uh, Uh, The Bureau of Economic Analysis announced that GDP had contracted for a second term. Uh, Coming off the last year's historic economic growth and regaining all the private sector jobs lost during the pandemic crisis, it's no surprise that the economy is slowing down as the Federal Reserve acts to bring down inflation. But even as we face historic global challenges, we are on the right path, the president said, and we will come through this transition stronger and more secure. In a statement after the GDP report was released, our job market remains historically strong. Meanwhile, inflation reached a 40 year high during the administration of uh, President Biden, lowering real wages. Gas prices also reached record breaking heights this summer, with the national average hitting five dollars a gallon. The Biden administration, including the president's National Economic Council director, Brian Deese, and White House Press Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre have reportedly denied the traditional definition of a recession, claiming it's not the technical definition, which is really interesting, not only that they would make the claim, but that um, the media allows them to make it without challenge. If this had been George Bush or if it had been Donald Trump, uh, they could not have gotten away with redefining a traditional recession. Two minutes. All right. Douglas Andrew says of all of this weeks ago, the Democrats circled today's date on the calendar and began hoping against hope that the news would be better, that the headlines wouldn't make official what we'd already been feeling in our bones. No dice with uh, we are in recession. As the Wall Street Journal reports, the U.S. economy shrank for a second quarter in a row, a common definition of recession, as businesses trimmed their uh, inventories and housing markets buckled under the rising interest rates and high inflation took the steam out of consumer spending. Gross domestic product, a broad measure of goods and services produced across the economy, fell at an inflation and seasonally adjusted annual rate of 0.9 percent in the second quarter. The Commerce Department said Thursday that marked a deterioration from the 1.6 percent rate of uh, contraction recorded in the first three months of 2022. The formula is simple, really, and it's been generally understood and applied for the last 10 recessions we've experienced, dating all the way back to 1948. Two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth equals a recession since 1948, period. And yet the Democrats, fellow traveling um, in the mainstream media, are still in denial, still trying to use the Jedi mind trick on us. These aren't the awful economic numbers you're looking for. Take state-run NPR, for example, whose morning headlines read, U.S. economy just had a second quarter of negative growth. Is it a recession? Well, they know the answer. Uh, But... Don't try telling uh, Team Biden's economic advisor, who uh, whose flexible views on what constitutes a recession deserves a special call out. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to look at some of the news. And then coming up uh, in our third segment, 
Mark Atterbury, a pastor and author, Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, Mark Atterbury. He is a pastor and the author of Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. That's coming up in our next segment. Well, after more than a year of expressing his concerns about the impact of inflation, Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, has signed off on a massive tax and spending bill that only would push prices for working families even higher. The deal, which Manchin made with Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, was reached only hours before the Department of Commerce announced that the economy shrank for the second quarter in a role which most economists consider a recession. With inflation hitting 9.1 percent in June, this is a trajectory Um, for stagflation, inflation adjusted wages for the average American worker has fallen by nearly $3,400 since the president took office. Inflation happens when too much money is chasing too few goods and services. The government's policies over the last two years have been a perfect recipe for the highest inflation in four decades. Trillions of dollars in government spending financed by the Federal Reserve's printing presses, coupled with lockdowns, new regulations, a war on energy and anti-work programs that drove down supply. The president's $1.9 trillion America Rescue Plan, a stimulus spending bill in March of 2021, proved to be the match that lit the inflationary fire. The president and his uh, allies in Congress are now back for more. The so-called Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which is the rename of Build Back Better, in reality only would add to the inflationary pain families are already feeling thanks to hundreds of billions in new government spending and job-destroying tax hikes. The legislation's proponents will argue that over the next decade, the bill's higher taxes would offset the new spending and reduce budget deficit and thus inflationary pressures on uh, net over 2022 to 2031 budget window. It's uh, it is true that the recent massive deficit financed by the Federal Reserve and driven by excessive government spending has resulted in crippling inflation. That is true. Unfortunately, the Inflation Reduction Act doubles down on the same irresponsible fiscal policy that's caused inflation. All of the new government spending is up front, while the deficit-reducing revenues are backloaded. The result would be higher short-term deficits and higher inflation. So it's fitting that Section 1 of the bill, the misleading title, with the uh, will be struck down by a point of order as extraneous for violating the reconciliation budget process, Bird Rule. Well, the same point of order can be uh, can uh, cut the uh, the title of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because every provision in that budget reconciliation bill must be directly related to changing fiscal outcomes. In 2010, Manchin said, I don't think during a time of recession you mess with any of the taxes or increase any taxes. Well, that's common sense. Higher taxes drive up consumer prices, depress wages, stifle needed investment, hitting families when it hurts the most. But the legislation he now supports reportedly would be would increase taxes by more than four hundred and fifty billion dollars over the next decade, climbing to three quarters of a trillion dollars when the drug price controls that work like business taxes are counted. Businesses would face a complicated new alternative minimum tax based on different accounting methods than they normally use for calculating taxes. And this would increase the tax burdens on employers, even if they're following the tax laws already on the books. Well, the reality is that corporations, as in the buildings and logos often associated with them, can't pay taxes. 
Only the workers inside corporations, the savers and investors who own their stock, and the customers who consume their goods and services can bear the burden of higher tax. Those ordinary Americans would be the ones who take home smaller paychecks, have smaller savings and retirement accounts, and who pay more for the products they buy. A National Bureau of Economic Research study published in April, a couple of years ago, found that the price increases after a corporate tax hike are larger for lower-price items and products purchased by low-income households. The proposal also includes a new $78.9 billion slush fund for the Internal Revenue Service, allowing that agency that has dubious history of political corruption to add thousands of new agents with little accountability. It would impose price controls on prescription drugs that would result in reduced access for patients in need. Obamacare subsidies would be expanded temporarily, sending billions of taxpayer dollars to insurance companies. The Inflation Reduction Act would even advance the radical Green New Deal agenda, spending an astonishing $369 billion in the name of decarbonizing all sectors of the economy. The president's anti-fossil fuel policies have already cost us dearly, driving up prices. However, these subsidies would have a far greater impact than... um, Uh, then the paper would uh, lead us to believe that the price tag, if you will, these $369 billion would be used to manipulate the market into shifting trillions of dollars of investment out of good productive uses and into these politically motivated green dead ends, essentially, at least at this point where we're not prepared to go thoroughly green. But all of this on the heels of the Senate passing another massive $280 billion corporate welfare bill paid for with more inflation, falling real incomes and a further declining economy. And by the way, that legislation was passed by the House earlier uh, today. Americans are already hurting to turn the tide on stagflation. Congress has to stop the spending But that is not uh, how Congress is currently trending. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell uh, hit Manchin and Schumer uh, saying that the deal for raising taxes in a recession is a bad deal. It appears the West Virginia senator, as mentioned, and his negotiations with the leader, uh, Chuck Schumer, has whittled down the Democrats' last party-line spending bill of 2022. Then on Wednesday, uh, Manchin made a, a surprise announcement. Well, the uh, Senate Republicans are quick to hit the Democrats for hiking taxes in the midst of a recession, saying minutes ago, new data confirmed what a supermajority of Americans already knew. Democrats have plunged America into a recession. According to official statistics, the U.S. economy just shrunk for the second consecutive quarter, the Senate majority leader, rather minority leader, said in remarks on the Senate floor. He went on to say, apparently, our Democratic colleagues do not want to be responsible for just skyrocketing prices alone. They want Americans to be faced with skyrocketing prices and higher taxes and fewer jobs all at the same time. In a press conference conducted over Zoom, Manchin defended the 15 percent corporate minimum tax as a matter of fairness. If someone's upset because they weren't paying it another um, or anything before, please come forward and tell us why you were able to have this great country protect you and give you these opportunities and you don't have to pay anything into it. That's the only tax that we really changed. There's no tax increase in the reconciliation bill, he said, except the 15 percent minimum I don't know how anyone could be opposed when we think corporations should be paying 21%. Well, the back and forth will continue. Manchin has signed on, but whether or not it will pass the House and the Senate remains to be 
seen. We'll follow that story as it develops. Meanwhile, President Biden held his longest call with Chinese President Xi Jinping on Thursday morning with tensions between the two world powers. The call, the fifth between President Biden and President Xi since Biden took office, began at 8.33 a.m. Eastern time and lasted for two hours and 17 minutes, according to the White House. Chinese government officials have recently demanded House Speaker Nancy Pelosi cancel a planned trip to Taiwan, saying it is a betrayal of Chinese-U.S. foreign policy agreements. The call was a part of the Biden administration's effort to maintain and deepen lines of communication between the two countries and uh, responsibly manage our differences and work together where our interests align, the White House said of the call afterwards. The call follows the two leaders' conversation on March 18th and a series of conversations between high-level U.S. and PRC officials. The two presidents discussed a range of issues important to the bilateral relationship and other regional and global issues and tasked their teams to continue following up on today's conversation in particular to address climate change and health security. China, of course, has no interest in climate change. On uh, Taiwan, the president underscored that the United States policy has not changed and that the United States strongly opposes unilateral efforts to change the status quo or undermine peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. The readout uh, read the Chinese Communist Party is threatened to respond harshly if the speaker visits the island, which mainland China believes rightfully belongs to the Communist Chinese Party. China's government warned last week it would uh, take forceful measures if Pelosi visited Taiwan after the financial time. Times reported she would travel and the Chinese claimed the island nation being theirs next month would be inappropriate. Officials in Taiwan, known as the Republic of China, is an island nation off the coast of um, Asia's mainland. Taiwan has declared itself independent of the People's Republic of China, has claimed continuation of governance from pre-revolutionary China. And the People's Republic of China has long claimed sovereignty over the uh, island and the Taiwan Strait, the relatively narrow strip of ocean between the island and of Taiwan and the uh, Chinese mainland. The Chinese military has frequently sent planes into the area testing Taiwan's air defenses zone. And you might recall earlier this week, there were air raids um, in preparation for the possibility, which seems stronger now than a couple of days ago, that Nancy Pelosi and her entourage will visit the tiny island. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Mark Atterbury, Troublemakers in the Church, the title of his book. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, most people would agree that the church is an amazing idea. The idea that people who share faith in Christ can worship and serve together, enjoy sweet fellowship with love, forgiveness, mutual support as its hallmarks. But the reality is often quite different. When people who are part of the church behave in ways that are thoughtless or selfish, even vicious, then that shining ideal darkens and people get wounded. Sometimes they never recover. Suddenly, the one place in the community that should symbolize hope and light becomes a house of, well, pain. Well, during his uh, 46 years as a pastor, my next guest, Mark Atterbury, pretty much saw it all in his new book, Troublemakers in the Church, written with humor and pastoral wisdom. He identifies 25 types of difficult church members and how to deal with them while also building a healthy church culture. Mark Atterbury is an award-winning author, speaker, writer, and consultant following 46 years as a pastor and joins us today to talk about his book, Troublemakers in the Church, Dealing with the Difficult, the Dangerous, and the Deadly. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Hey, it's my pleasure to be here, Georgine. It's a painful subject to undertake because it exposes the soft underbelly in the body of Christ. I suppose we shouldn't be surprised if we understand the nature of sin, but we are disappointed. What motivated you to take this subject on, identifying specific types of troublemaking and how we should move forward, given this part of our experience? Hey, well, that's a good question. This book is actually a child of the pandemic. When the pandemic hit in 2020, our church shut down, and uh, all of a sudden I had time on my hands, and I didn't want to waste that time. I wanted to spend it doing something productive. I decided to write a book, and the next question was, what book? Well, I was right at the end of my 46th year in ministry. And so I just asked myself the question, what's the one thing I've seen all these years that needs, for the sake of the body of Christ, that needs to be addressed, that needs to be talked about? And this was the topic that God put on my heart, and I mulled it over for a couple of weeks, thought about it, prayed about it. I began looking around for other books that had been written on this subject, and I found that there was almost nothing out there. And anything I I really found that was substantive and good was 20 or 30 years old. And so I thought, you know, maybe this might be the topic that we just don't like to talk about because it, well, it betrays the underbelly, as you say, of the church and the weakness of a lot of Christians. And maybe we just don't want to seem like we're beating up on the body of Christ by addressing this subject. But I feel like it's really important for church leaders to have a handbook that they can use to deal with some of these problems. And then I think it's also good to have a mirror to look into Mm -hmm. because, you know, we might find ourselves on this list somewhere. Well, in fact, one of the the things I thought about uh, in uh, reading the book is the fact that we can look for ourselves in the various categories that you outline. We always tend to think it's somebody else that's the troublemaker in the church, and it's very difficult to admit, I may be be that guy. (laughs) I may be the one that's uh, that's making trouble. Early in the book, I talk about how, because I want to prepare people to read this book the right way, and I know that as you read about these different types of troublemakers, I list 25 of them, that you're going to see other people's faces flashing through your mind, people that you've seen in church or you've met in church, and you say, oh yeah, I've met that person or I've met that person. But I, I encourage the reader not to ever forget that somewhere, somebody might be reading this book and seeing your face flash through their mind. So, yeah, it's it's important for us to look for ourselves in these uh, in these chapters. How do you define a, a troublemaker? Well, that's a really good question, because um, we tend to think that troublemakers are people with weaknesses and imperfections. But that's not really true, because if if all it took was to have weaknesses and imperfections to be a troublemaker, we'd all be troublemakers. Um, I think a person who is a troublemaker in a church is a person who has weaknesses and imperfections, but those weaknesses and imperfections have become an issue that are hindering ministry, that are hindering or hurting the church in some way. For example, a person really might just be simply a distraction, or he might be discouraging people, he might be pitting people against each other, he might be, he might even be damaging the reputation of the church and the community in some way. Um, but the point is, if you peel away all of, if you have a church problem and you peel away all the layers of the end and you get right down to the core, you'll almost finally, almost always find that person there. 
or maybe several people. You know, troubles in the church don't happen out of thin air. They happen because people say and do things they shouldn't do. But I will also want to add that not all troublemakers are bad people. Some of the people on my list are actually very, very good people, but they just have some quality, some um, element of immaturity. They have some eccentricity. They maybe have some brokenness in their life that has become a problem. But in their hearts, they mean well, and they love Jesus. But this weakness or imperfection has become a problem, and that's when it has to be dealt with. Mm. I, I think we might be surprised that we would find some conflict in the church. It's not a surprise to the one who designed and called forth the church. Uh, so Correct. the fact that we, sh- you know, iron sharpens iron, we we learn to love one another through very difficult challenges and uh, relationship struggles shouldn't come as a surprise, but I think we're also a bit sensitive because so often the church is identified as being full of hypocrites and therefore I don't want to be a part of it. Um, what do you mm-hmm. say to those who want to just hide the, the idea that we we do struggle with one another and our effort to honor Christ and to love one another and to live in community? Um, and our critics say, yeah, that's that's the reason I'm not associating with the church. Well, you know, you make a good point because I believe there are literally millions of people who used to go to church but don't anymore because they have been wounded at church. And they may still love Jesus with all their hearts, but but they've been hurt at church. And so I've met a lot of people over the years that want to keep their relationship with Jesus. They just don't want to be a part of the church body because of their history and their past. And what I would say to those people is that, you know, if you have a job somewhere, I'll bet you have the same problems you encountered at church at your workplace. Or if you go to school, I'm sure you have the same types of people and the same problems there that you're trying to stay away from at church. But church seems to be the only place that we hold accountable for these things. You know, we say, oh, I'm not going to go to church because there's people there that uh, have hurt me. Well, do you quit your job because there's somebody at work that said something to you that was painful? You know, do you drop out of school because there was somebody at school that said something to you you didn't like? We tend to hold the church to a higher accountability than anywhere else. And and I guess maybe we as Christians should be held to a higher accountability because of our faith and our commitment to Christ. But in the real world, when you're talking about real people, imperfect people, you have to expect that there's going to be trouble and troublesome people everywhere you go. In the book um, we're talking about today, Troublemakers in the Church, you uh, identify 25 types of troublemakers. Uh, But you put at the top of that hierarchy liars as being the worst. Explain why, you know, given this list, there's some pretty disturbing things on the list. Why are liars at the top of your your list in terms of the impact it can have on the church? Well, when I decided to rank all of these troublemakers from 25 all the way down to number one, I really took seriously that number one slot because this is me saying, hey, this is the worst person who goes to church. And I thought, boy, I don't want to give that title out lightly. I want to really think that and pray that through. But what I ultimately came to was taking a look at, you know, the history of God's work among men throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, all kinds of stories, all kinds of events. And the one thing that seemed to crop up in most of the ugly stories in the Bible 
is falsehood in some way, is some kind of uh, dishonesty, some kind of lying, and especially going all the way back to the beginning of time when Satan wanted to corrupt God's perfect creation. I'm sure he pulled out his his best tool, his biggest hammer to try to get that done because it was so important to him. And so what did he use to corrupt that perfect creation of God? He used a lie. And he told Eve that, uh, you know, if she would just eat the forbidden fruit, then she would be like God and she would know what God knows. And of course, we're still paying for that uh, decision that she made to this day. But I believe any problem you have in the church, any kind of problem you want to mention, I don't care what it is, if you, again, start peeling away the layers and get down to the heart of it, you're going to find you're going to find a lie in there somewhere. Or if not a lie, you're going to find a misrepresentation, or you're going to find somebody that didn't, that didn't tell the whole truth, or somebody that twisted the truth, or, you know, spin, all those kinds of things. When they get involved in, in our lives and in our relationships, they do cause trouble. And I'd also believe that you can solve any problem in the church, any problem, as long as everybody involved is totally honest mm. and sincere. But but so often we don't tell the whole truth or we misrepresent the truth or we maybe just tell an outright lie. And I just think the lie is the worst. You know, Jesus said the truth will set you free. And I believe as long as you've got any kind of falsehood working in the body of Christ, you've really got problems. Yeah. We need to go to a break here in uh, in just a moment, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Pastor Mark Atterbury. He is a successful author, most recently, of Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with the author of Troublemakers in the Church, Dealing with the Difficult, the Dangerous, and the Deadly. Mark Atterbury is my guest. During our previous segment, you made the comment that many people, because the church does fall short of our expectations and certainly uh, falls far short of perfection, and many people just opt out of the church altogether. Given what the scriptures have to say, is that an option that we uh, that we have um, an imperfect church, you say, is worthy of full commitment as well. And uh, can you maybe address that? Because some of our listeners may have already checked out because the church is imperfect. I've just come to the conclusion, if I'm a part of it, then it's going to fall short. <laughs> yes, that's true. We're all imperfect. So the moment you step across the threshold at your local church, that church is no longer perfect. But I made that comment, I, and I stand behind it. Mm-hmm. I, I love that comment that that even an imperfect church is worthy of your full support, because that's the only kind of church there is. And so the idea that because you've discovered imperfections in your church, you have to leave, you have to bow out, is really kind of ridiculous. I mean, the better option, I think the option that God would have put his approval on, is to knuckle down and try to make the church better and use your gifts and your talents and your support uh, to try to improve the church. Uh, because if you say, well, I, I don't, I can't handle this. I got to go somewhere else, maybe try a different church. Um, you know, it's going to happen. You're going to have the same problems there eventually. When you first walk through the door, it might seem like a wonderful place and everybody might seem so nice. But the longer you stay in a church, the more you begin to see 
people for what they really are and see their imperfections. And so you end up with people who want to just either drop out of church altogether, or in many cases, they want to hop from church to church to church. And in fact, I identified in in the list, the church mm-hmm. hopper is one of the people that really is a problem in the church because they don't stay put, they don't get, you know, long-term commitment is missing. And um, I actually know, Georgine, I know people who have attended every church in the town where they live <laughs> and been members of every church in the town where they live and have now skipped to the next town over. And now they're going to church there. And this is what I mean when I say, if you discover your church is imperfect, just stay put and figure out what you can do to help make it better. And I think there are things all of us can do in that situation. Yeah. Now, you'd make a distinction between a church that is not doctrinally sound and one that has challenges because people are part of the congregation? Absolutely. In fact, I think uh, number six on the list is the false teacher. And some churches do go off the rails doctrinally, and they're not teaching the truth, they're not teaching the Bible. And when you find yourself in a place like that, absolutely, you need to find another place to go to church. But if it's just a matter of uh, personality clash with somebody or, you know, just whatever, if it's something minor like that, which doesn't feel minor in the moment, but in the big picture, it really is, that's when you need to stay put and and try to contribute to the situation and make it a better church instead of just always abandoning ship. You've been a pastor for decades. Have you come across all of these um, uh, troublemaking tendencies that you write about at one time or another? Every single one of them a dozen times. You know, there's a, I, I say at the beginning of the book that I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a behavioral expert or anything like that. But there's an old saying that he knows the waters best who has waded through them. And that's me. I raise my hand on that one. I've waded through these waters for 46 years. I served five different churches. My last ministry lasted 31 years, and I have seen all of these people many times. And I will tell you this, Georgine, every church has them all. Maybe not all at the same time, but over a period of years, all of these people are going to find their way into and sometimes through and out the back door through the church. And the reason this happens is because on Sunday morning, We pastors unlock the front doors of the church, and we say, whosoever will may come. Everybody's welcome. And when you do that, you're going to get people coming into your church, and some of them are going to be the greatest people in the world, and some of them are going to be really difficult. And so you're going to get them. You're going to get them. You can't avoid it. There's nothing you can do to keep them out. The trick is to manage them well, and that's really a big part of what this book is about. You divided uh, troublemakers into three different sections, the difficult, the dangerous, and uh, the deadly, which is very serious. Can you talk a little bit about each of these categories? Sure. The difficult uh, is number 25 down through number 16. And these are people who I'm going to say most, if not all of them, are good people. They're good Christians. They love Jesus. They're probably at church every Sunday, but they have some quality about them that is just 
really frustrating, annoying, hard to deal with. They're just difficult people. The second section, uh, the dangerous, I call them, that's number 15 down through number nine. And these are people who kind of take it to the next level. They're more than just frustrating. They're more than just annoying. They are people who have some deep issues and they have the potential to cause real trouble in the church if they're not handled or managed well. And then the third group, I call them the deadly, number eight down through number one. And these are the people, well, Jesus called them wolves. And I don't know, when I started writing this book, I didn't know anything about wolves. I knew what a wolf was, and that was about it. But I started doing some research on that word because Jesus used it. And I discovered that pound for pound, a wolf is the deadliest killer on the planet. And a wolf can smell a drop of blood a mile away. That's a fact that blew my mind when I read it. And Jesus chose that word to describe these people who would get in amongst the lambs and try to kill them. So I, so I slapped that word deadly on this group. And number eight down through number one, these are the true wolves, the people who can literally destroy a church uh, under certain circumstances. And again, this is very sobering and serious. It also reminds us that not everyone who is occupying a seat in the church, sitting in the pew or across the, the room, is there with a sincere desire to follow Jesus or to draw nearer to the church community. There are people who come who don't know him and are intent on uh, disrupting the church. No, it's not our job to point them out, but we do need to be aware that that's, uh, that that's a possibility. Yes, and, and so much of this hinges on the leadership of the church and how they handle these people. And it really is, I'm asked all the time, well, is it the pastor's job to deal with these people? Well, he has to deal with them in the fact that he has to interact with them. He's their pastor, and surely he's going to encounter them in various and sundry situations. But really, it's the leaders. The Bible talks about the elders of the church being the shepherds of the flock. And it's really their job, I think, in tandem with the pastor to deal with these people. And you have to know, if you're in church leadership, you have to know that at some point your church body is going to be threatened by a wolf. And if not by a wolf, then some of these other people who may be less deadly, but they still can cause a lot of problems. The problem I see today is that we have a lot of people leading our churches who, well, they resist confrontation at all costs. You know, I don't want to... I hate to use the word, but I'm going to use it because I think it's true, and that is we have a lot of weak leaders in our churches who would rather placate people and who would rather seek peace at any price than to stand up and confront sin and call it sin when it rears its ugly head in the body. And the image of the shepherd just allowing the sheep to be devoured comes to mind as you make that description. Exactly. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a break here at the top of the hour. We're talking with Mark Atterbury. He's a successful author. He's a pastor. And we're talking about his latest book, Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous and the deadly. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation I began in the previous hour with the author of Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. In it, he also writes about not only the biggest problems, but how to solve them. Uh, churches are full of imperfect people and leaders who don't always get it right. But in the book, Troublemakers in the Church, Pastor Mark Atterbury identifies 25 most common problems people well, bring to the church. After more than 40 years in leadership, he has seen it all. Over the past few years, churches have been put to the test with a pandemic, lockdowns, scandals, and now denominational splits on sexuality and fidelity to God's word. He says that I am not denying the role that Satan plays in church problems. The problem I see that hasn't been um, hasn't been given enough attention is the behavior of people who are supposed to know better. People who walk in every Sunday toting the word of God. In the book, he offers people in leadership solutions for dealing with tough problems like choosing good leaders, shaping the culture of the church carefully, discipline, and how to pick battles carefully. Once again, my guest um, uh, this afternoon, the author of the book, Mark Atterbury. This is such a sort of a thorny issue, um, but one I'm, I'm so grateful that you are calling your readers to address because the church can advance in ways that perhaps we can't even imagine if we learn to uh, to fellowship with one another, to call out things that need to be dealt with in a way that's honoring to Christ. And we become the community that God intends for us uh, ultimately to be. You write in um, in Troublemakers in the Church that um, you prefer mediocre talent serving in the church over big, talented people with egos. And this is one of the areas, one of the troublemaking areas that we can see in the church when there is a big ego that that really appears before the skill is actually exercised. Yes, that comment comes from a chapter um, that I wrote about the glory hound. And the glory hound is that person in the church that sees the church stage is kind of their very own America's Got Talent performing venue. Um, they see themselves, usually, to be honest with you, it's usually a musical person, uh, somebody who's a, a, a good singer or a musician, and they, they seem to think the church is their venue for performance. And so they come and they bring this tremendous talent, but they also bring this tremendous ego. And so this is the type of person who is a problem because he or she gets upset if he or she is not allowed to sing the solo at the Christmas Eve service, or if somebody else gets more attention than, than he or she gets, all of a sudden they're, they're wounded and they're grumbling and they're criticizing the choir director or the music minister, and they can create a lot of problems. And so I... After 46 years of ministry, I I long since came to the conclusion that I would rather have, um, you know, mediocre talent that is humble serving in the church rather than big, talented people who bring their egos with them. The church has too many divas in it, if you could say that. And I think there are male and female divas. But, um, yeah, I always prefer humble, moderately talented people over egomaniacs. What is another of the the troublemakers that you write about in the book that you find prominent that we don't necessarily see leadership or the church in general 
uh, handling very well to, to the detriment, not only to the church, but to the individual who is presumably being transformed and conformed into the image of Christ and needs brothers and sisters around him or her that will speak the truth in love. Well, okay. One would be um, number 10 on my list, which is what I call the one day wonder. And this is the person who is, you see him at church, and he seems like the greatest Christian in the world. I mean, he's wearing a smile. He says all the right things. He uses the Christian buzzwords. He hugs people in the lobby. He says, God bless you to to his friends when he's driving away after the service is over. You just think, wow, this guy is a tremendous Christian. But then when if you could go with him to work on Monday and listen to his language, or listen to the jokes he tells, you would get a completely different feeling. There are some people who are just, I mean, they're a good Christian, but only one day a week. And I have a little story for you. I walked into a hardware store one day, and I knew the owner. He's right here in my own community. And as soon as he saw me coming through the door, he said, aha. And when anybody says aha to a pastor, that's that's, <laughs> a, that's not, whatever comes next is not going to be good. He says, aha, Mark. Does so-and-so go to your church? And unfortunately, the name he threw out, yeah, the guy went to our church. In fact, he was pretty involved in our church and had some responsibility in our church. And my heart sank because I knew what was coming next wasn't mm. going to be good. And he said, well, if you'd been here 15 minutes ago, you could have listened to him cuss me out. And, oh, my gosh, I almost got sick to my stomach. And I said, look. I'm so sorry that happened. We obviously don't teach or condone that at our church. I'm sorry he did that. Um, but, you know, people are people, and they're going to do things. But 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 this person who is a great Christian on Sunday, but not through the rest of the week, uh, that person is a problem for the church. You know, you do your best as a pastor or as a church leader to promote the church and build up the church and and get the church to the place where it's a shining light in the community. And then you have people like this one-day wonder who go out and just trash. They just undo everything you're trying to accomplish. They're, they're working against you. And um, it, that type of person is a problem, believe me. So how do you handle a problem like that? I'm thinking of this, the song from The Sound of Music. What do you do with, you know, Maria? <laughs> <laughs> Who's responsible for for speaking to him um, or or challenging him or correcting? How do you handle a situation like that? Hypothetically, how well, would you deal with it? Well, I'll tell you more than hypothetically. I'll tell you what I did. I, I caught him in a quiet moment at church one day. He actually was there mowing the grass. And um, I walked out of my house. I'm out there on the mower and I walked out when he took a break. He had a little place under a shade tree that he pulled over and he was uh, having a bottle of water, and I just walked out there, and I said, hey, I want to ask you a question. Um, did you have a little confrontation with uh, the owner of the hardware store the other day? And he looked really sheepish. He he, he knew he was busted. And uh, he said, how did you know? And I said, well, I walked in about 15 minutes after you left, and he told me. And uh, he kind of hung his head, and he said, yeah. He said, I, I lost my cool a little bit. And I said, you know – do you realize how damaging that is uh, to the body of Christ and to the work we're trying to do here? And he said he did. And so, yeah, I spoke to him about it. I didn't jump on him. I didn't yell at him. I didn't, 
you know, threatening him or anything, but I just tried to help him understand. Now, I don't know if that helped or not. I, I mean, he might have gone out the next day and done the same thing, but, but that's how I handled that situation. And a lot of these things in the book, a lot of these troublemakers, they don't warrant, a, you know, a full-blown leadership meeting mm-hmm. where, you know, we bring them in and set them down and shine a light in their eyes and interrogate them. They don't warrant that. Some of them do, by the way. But most of them don't. But they do need to be addressed. And um, you know, again, you gotta you gotta be able to talk to people and confront people when things happen. Um, if you if you just let this stuff slide, I mean, it doesn't get better. It always gets worse. Oh, the challenge of leadership. We're talking with Mark Atterbury. He's a pastor and most recently the author of Troublemakers in the Church, dealing with the difficult, the dangerous and the deadly. And can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure, I'd be happy to. Okay, thank you so much. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with uh, Pastor Mark Atterbury, author of Troublemakers in the Church, Dealing with the Difficult, the Dangerous, and the Deadly. Now, in the book, you go into some detail about the 25 types of troublemakers, some more serious than others, all, however, <laughs> in need of being dealt with in some way. Um, but you also, in the book, uh, write about how to do that, how to deal with the uh, the difficult, the dangerous, and the deadly. Let's talk a little bit about that. You gave an example of uh, someone who had, well, acted out outside of the church, but was uh, identified as someone associated with the church. In terms of, of leadership, um, the the pastors and the elders, what's the best approach to the inevitable conflict that will come when members of a congregation cross lines that uh, require um, at least it being addressed or disciplined or uh, something in order for, for their own sake, in order that they might repent and move in a more healthy direction or that the congregation can remain healthy? It's a really good question. And without that question, the book really doesn't mean anything. Because um, you can identify these people, but if you don't know what to do with mm-hmm. them, then you're at a loss. So that's really a key question. So let me just say this. Um, not every person and not every problem needs to be dealt with. Because if you were going to deal with everything that happened that wasn't just exactly right, you'd get nothing else done. Because the church, let's face it, the church is a messy place. If you've got 100 people or 1,000 people or 10,000 people, every one of them is messed up in some way. And so church is just inevitably going to be a messy place. You don't deal with every problem all the time. So you have to pick your battles. You have to have some way of discerning, okay, what, as a, as a leadership team, what are we going to deal with and what are we going to let go? And so I give five suggestions on how to identify a problem that needs to be dealt with. Five questions you can ask. Number one, does the problem involve false doctrine? You know, we're called to rightly divide the word Mm -hmm. of truth. Paul, writing to Timothy about his ministry, talked about the danger that false teachers were and how they can tear things up. And so I think that's the first question. Does this problem involve false doctrine? If it doesn't, it needs to be dealt with. The second question is, does the problem keep coming up? There are lots of bad things that happen, but they only happen once. 
because when they happen, the people involved in them realize what a bad deal it was, and they say to themselves, man, I'm never doing that again. And so a lot of things only happen one time. And if it only happens one time, you let it go. I, I would say you don't need to worry too much about it. But if it keeps happening, especially if the same person keeps causing the same problem over and over again, yeah, that's that's one you want to deal with. Question number three, does the problem involve wolfish behavior? Mm. And this is, you know, wolves eat sheep. Sheep die at the hands of wolves. And so if you have somebody in your church who's causing, quote unquote, death in the body of Christ, if they're running people off from the church, or if they're wounding people to the point that they feel like they can't come to church anymore, then you've got a wolf in your flock, and that needs to be dealt with, wolfish behavior. Question number four is, does the problem involve an attack on leadership? This is something else we cannot stand for. The Bible tells us to respect and honor the leaders of the church, the elders. And so when you have somebody in your church who's trying to undermine the elders, maybe because he he wants control, he wants power. And so a lot of times when people want power for themselves, they try to diminish it in other people. And so uh, if you have an attack on leadership, it has to be dealt with. And then question number five is, does the problem carry the whiff of scandal? Um, maybe you've heard rumors of an affair happening in the church, prominent people, or there's, there's just something going on uh, that if it, was, if it got out and if it was not handled properly, it would just be a scandal in the community. Uh, anything like that, I think, has to be looked into at least. Uh, and dealt with by the leaders. So you don't deal with every problem all the time. You pick your battles, but you do have criteria you go by. And and I think that is the best way to approach it. You write that troublemakers don't make much headway in a healthy church. Um, and what you've described is a healthy church where leadership yes. uh, recognizes the the um, need to uh, confront or at least to, to discuss or if something can can uh, can go by the wayside, um, uh, what about uh, parishioners? Uh, someone is um, engaged in conduct or language or or whatever, um, and you are having an individual problem with someone. What's the best approach for the for the parishioner who might be struggling and the leadership may not be aware of or involved? Well, yeah, the, I think the Sermon on the Mount tells us that if we have a problem with somebody, we go talk to them. And we try to work that out. And I would say probably 90 to 95 percent of the time, one conversation takes care of it. But there are times when one conversation doesn't take care of it. And the fact that conversation may be kind of like pouring fuel on the fire. And I think there is a point at which a, a parishioner, if they have a problem with somebody in the church and can't seem to get it solved, they need to take it to the leaders. Uh, there's in Matthew 18, Jesus gives this beautiful um, outline of what should happen if two people can't solve their own problems. And um, at, at, at some point, it says, "Take it to the church." And I take that to mean take it to the leaders of the church. I don't mm-hmm. think it means stand up in the middle of a worship service on Sunday and tell everybody what's happening. I think it means 
gather your elders together and your pastor and tell them what's going on and that you can't seem to make any progress solving this situation. And then from there, it's, of course, the leader's uh, responsibility to take it from there. And it could be, it could be that at some point you have to um, treat the offending person like an outsider. That's what Jesus says. And, um, you know, I've only seen that happen twice in 46 years. But it did, it did happen a couple of times. I'd like to tell you just a real brief story Please. To, as, a, as a word of encouragement to pastors. If you ever come to the place where you have to ask someone to leave your church, we had to do that. And I remember it was about oh, probably 10, 12 years ago, there was a young woman, 26 years old, who had uh, made uh, sexual overtures to one of our staff members. And the staff member, I'm so thankful for this, the staff member uh, absolutely uh, resisted and came and talked to me about the situation, said, what do I do here? We brought the young woman in and talked to her. She lost control of herself and screamed and yelled, and and it was just an ugly situation, and she would not repent, and she threatened him, and she threatened to uh, burn the church building down, and there were all kinds of things. But um, what we did was we asked her not to come back, and because she had threatened to burn the building down, we got a restraining order against her and would not allow her on the property. So the following Sunday morning, I had to present this to our congregation because she was a fairly prominent person. Everybody knew her, and we knew that they were going to wonder what happened to her, and they were going to ask her, and there was no telling what she was going to say. So I stood in the pulpit. I almost wept. I mean, I could barely keep from weeping Mm. and explained in general terms. I didn't say anything specific that we had had a problem and that we had run it through our leadership and we had tried to solve the problem, but it, it just didn't work. And so now this person we've asked not to come back to church until she repents and then she'll be welcomed back. And I remembered when the church was over that day, I literally felt like going into my office and throwing up. I just I just never felt so awful in my life to have to do that. But two people met me in the hallway. I'll never forget this as long as I live. Two people, a man and his wife, and they said, could we speak to you for a moment? I said, sure. They said, this is our first Sunday at church. And I immediately began apologizing for what they had just witnessed. And I I said, I'm so sorry you had to be here on your first day. She said, no, 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 you don't understand. This is going to be our church from now on. She said, when we lived up north, of course, I live in Florida. She said, when we lived up north, our church was destroyed by people like this because the, the church leaders wouldn't take a stand. And she said, if we finally found a church where the leaders are strong and they'll deal with troublemakers, then we've found a church home. She said, we just wanted to find you and thank you for doing what you did to protect the body of Christ. I'll never forget that as long as I live. What I thought was a terrible thing happening, God used it. And so if you've got strong leadership who will deal with these really, really tough problems and take a a strong stand for the Word of God, uh, I believe your church will be blessed and it'll grow. Praise God. Once again, the book is titled Troublemakers in the Church, Dealing with the Difficult, the Dangerous, and the Deadly. The book is published by Hendrickson Publishers and Pastor Atterbury. We thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Georgie. Thank you for asking me.
Bye-bye. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be turning to some of the day's headlines. The House on Thursday passed the Bipartisan Chips and Science Act, which aims to increase domestic production of computer chips to allow the U.S. to become more competitive against China in the global technology market. The bill passed the House 243 to 187, uh, one day after passing the Senate 64 to 33. The president called the passage of the bill on Thursday exactly what we need to be doing to grow the economy right now. Dissenters disagreed. Kentucky Governor um, Andy Beshear, he um, he addressed what he called one of the worst, most devastating flooding events in Kentucky's history on Thursday morning, saying that officials expect loss of life as rescuers search the uh, the rising waters for people stranded and unaccounted for. At last check, about eight people were um, known dead. Torrential rains unleashed flash flooding and mudslides in parts of Kentucky, slamming the eastern part of the state particularly hard after thunderstorms dumped several inches of rain over the past few days. The situation right now is tough. There are people in eastern Kentucky on the top of their roofs waiting to be rescued. Uh, Rashir, who is a Democrat, said, adding that the water in most places is not receding and uh, has yet to crest. He also said that there are a number of people that are unaccounted for as water Uh, rescues continue into the day. So keep Kentucky in your prayers. Democrats are leading in the tight midterm race with a 4% edge over the GOP on the generic congressional ballot as voters rank abortion as the leading issue over inflation. A new Suffolk University USA Today poll shook up the midterms after 44% of voters said that if the election were held today, they would vote for a Democrat candidate, while 40% said that they would vote for a Republican, about 16% undecided. Republicans have taken a hit over the past month after a June poll from the university found Democrats and Republicans were evenly split on the generic congressional ballot, with both parties receiving 40% of the vote. While the economy remains uh, most important to voters in the upcoming election, with 20% saying that it's the most important issue, The poll also showed that many believe abortion trumps inflation as the most important issue this election cycle. Nearly 16 percent of voters said abortion is the leading issue, with about 11 percent saying inflation, despite hitting a 40 year high of 9.1 percent in June. The poll results come after the June Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade, giving the power to place limitations on abortions back to the people. The Republican National Convention would stop paying for former President Donald Trump's legal expenses if he announces he's running for president in 2024, according to a Thursday report. The RNC is currently bankrolling several legal cases for the former president, including personal lawsuits and government investigations. That uh, flow of cash would end once he announces his candidacy for president, according to ABC News. Now, some see the move as an incentive for Trump to delay announcing his candidacy at least until after the 2022 midterm elections, which Republicans are already poised to win. Well, they were poised, not entirely clear at this point. RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel had previously stated that the Republican Party cannot be biased in favor of any one candidate in the party's presidential primary. The party has to stay neutral, she said in January. I'm not telling anybody to run or not run in 2024. 
Top-level members of the Republican Party have encouraged the former president to delay announcing his candidacy until after the midterms. Many read that as Republicans fearing that a Trump announcement would upset the status quo of voters focused on inflation, gas prices, and President Biden's low approval rating. My point to him has always been, let's go win 22. That's a quote from Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, speaking on Tuesday of his conversation with Trump, adding that he encouraged the former president to hold off on an announcement. Uh, Trump stated earlier this month that he has already made up his mind on whether to run and that the main decision is now whether he will announce before or after the midterms. On the uh, Biden, uh, the the president's uh, vice presidential visits, uh, Joe Biden met with at least 14 of son uh, Hunter Biden's business associates while vice president in Obama's White House after having said he had never met any of them. In Windy City Woes, Chicago Democrats are silent on a plan to address plummeting arrests as crime surges and complacency and incompetence. A former Pentagon official says as China gains a foothold in America, Congress is sleeping at the wheel. With a lawsuit still in view, Turning Point USA responded to the analogy from the ABC show after threatening a lawsuit. And that's uh, The View. Turning Point USA founder Charlie Kirk slammed The View's liberal panelists on Jesse Waters' prime time for tying the conservative group summit last weekend to neo-Nazi demonstrators outside. Charlie Kirk said The View went after our 5,000 students at our event there at high school and college kids. And look, I get attacked all the time. People say false things. I'm a public figure. But when you go after 16 and 17 year olds that travel from across the country that then have to live for the rest of their life with a shadow over them because someone at ABC says that they might be linked to neo-Nazis. But look, what did it take for us to get to the point of an apology? We had to threaten a lawsuit. And uh, by the way, we're still entertaining that, even though the apology was issued yesterday. We're talking to some of the best lawyers out there that are experts in this. And as you know, these things can be very complicated, end quote. The FDA has added a uh, warning. Puberty blockers can cause brain swelling and vision loss. ABC reported earlier this month, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration added a warning to um, the hormone um, Well, I won't try to pronounce or mispronounce the name, the GNRH, I'll say that, commonly known as puberty blockers, indicating there were serious risks for youths who take them. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration identified six cases in females between the ages of five and 12 who were taking the the drug, uh, which presented a plausible association uh, and uh, the problems that followed, Uh, also known as uh, idiopathic interacranial hypertension occurs when the pressure inside the skull spontaneously increases, which can cause brain swelling, severe headaches, nausea, double vision, and even permanent vision loss. The warning seems to conflict with U.S. Assistant Assistant Secretary of Health uh, Rachel Levine's uh, claim that there is a, no argument among medical professionals that youth access to gender-affirming care, such as puberty blockers, is valuable and important. And uh, forgive my mispronunciation or poor attempt at explaining the name of the drug. Puberty blockers is what you need to know. The administration plans to sell 20 million more barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This makes the fifth sales. The Biden administration on Tuesday said it will sell an additional 20 million barrels of oil to the strategic, uh, or rather from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve as part of a previous plan to tap the facility to calm oil prices boosted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and as demand recovers from the pandemic. 
The U.S. is discussing unfreezing and giving assets to the Taliban for humanitarian relief. The insider reports that the U.S. and the Taliban are negotiating the release of $3.5 billion in Afghanistan's reserves that were frozen when the Taliban retook control of the country. Uh, Three unnamed sources told Reuters that officials have exchanged proposals for how the releases could be done. But two of the sources said there are still big issues standing in the way of the deal. Well, yeah, there would be, including the Taliban's wanting to keep top figures in the Afghan Central Bank in their roles, despite one of them being under U.S. sanctions. The U.S. froze Afghans $9.5 billion in reserves, some of which is held in New York City after the Taliban took over in August of 2021. Beverly Hills uh, will refuse to enforce the mandate should L.A. County reinstate masking. They voted unanimously not to enforce a Los Angeles County mask mandate should one be adopted. I feel it is our job to lead and I support the power of choice. That's a quote from Beverly Hills Mayor Lily Boss, uh, who said after the vote on Monday evening, they would stand firm. Walmart woes are sending U.S. stocks tumbling. The Dow down 229 points. Walmart off 7.6 percent. And Twitter plans to hold a shareholder vote for Elon Musk's buyout. Twitter said that it would hold a shareholders meeting to vote on the company's $44 billion acquisition by Elon Musk on the 13th of September. The shareholder meeting will commence at 10 a.m. Pacific time and will be available via a webcast. Shareholders will be able to watch the meeting live and then vote, the company said, in a filing with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about what's happening among the Anglicans when it comes to unity on the subject of traditional marriage. That, when we return, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Before I get into uh, what the Anglican Church has done or is doing, I want to let you know that tomorrow we're going to rerun a conversation I had with Jeff Tracy. He is the king of barbecue, the guru of the grill, and much, much more. Uh, Anyway, we had a conversation, not this, but last Thursday and broadcast it on the day of our conversation that was recorded earlier in the day. And somehow there was a technical difficulty that left about uh, 30 minutes of dead air. It wasn't discovered until, well, 30 minutes. Uh, James Glenn was actually driving away from the station and drove back to take care of the problem. Anyway, it was a great, uh, great uh, time with him, a lot of fun and good information on how to barbecue grill and all of that. So we're going to run that in the first hour of tomorrow's program. So you can look forward to my conversation with Jeff Tracy. Uh, he, by the way, hosts Barbecue Nation, heard on our sister station, KPAM, on Saturday. So we'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow as well. And then the Christian Outlook in the second hour. So if you were frustrated by the uh, long silence in that conversation, you can hear it from start to finish tomorrow. Or you can also go to the podcast. Well, ahead of a once-a-decade gathering, organizers scrapped a statement that would have reaffirmed the conference's historic stance against same-sex marriage. We're talking about the Anglicans. They've dropped the proposal to reaffirm traditional marriage, the stance that they had held. This is the um, uh, Lambeth Conference. They revised a draft statement calling same-sex marriage not permissible after pushback. Well, the uh, proposed statement on human dignity, one of many declarations or calls, 
that will go before the 650 bishops of the Anglican Church for approval received pushback from LGBT-affirming leaders in the global body, including Episcopal clergy. Well, the dramatically revised statement now recognizes Anglicans' deep disagreement on the subject. It says that many provinces continue to affirm that same-sex marriage is not permissible and other provinces have blessed and welcomed same-sex union marriage after careful theological reflection and a process of reception. Uh, It also reiterates uh, how Lambeth, the, the conference, in 1998, the resolution advised against legitimizing or blessing same sex unions, says the Archbishop Justin Welby. Uh, We have listened carefully and prayerfully to what bishops and many others have said in response to the draft calls, especially that on human dignity. The bishop overseeing the calls subgroup um, said that Archbishop Justin Welby has invited the bishops of the Anglican Communion to come together as a family to listen, pray and discern sometimes across deeply held differences. Well, the Anglican Communion includes an estimated 85 million members spread across 41 provinces, including the Episcopal Church here in the United States. Well, the Bishop of Los Angeles, John Harvey Taylor, was among the critics of the original call, as were clergy in Wales who voted last year to bless same-sex marriages. The Episcopal Church was suspended from the Anglican Communion in 2016 for three years for sanctioning the same. Well, the Church of England does not perform same-sex marriages, though views in the U.K. are shifting, which is interesting to me because one's uh, stance isn't based on popular views. It's based on what the scriptures teach. Nonetheless, views are uh, shifting there. Last year, the Methodist Church in England became the country's first largest denomination to allow same-sex marriage. Earlier this year, the Church of Scotland also approved same-sex marriage. At the conference that runs through uh, actually, it um, yeah runs through August the 8th in Canterbury, England. Bishops will be given the opportunity to vote on each call, saying either it speaks for them, does not speak for them, or requires further discernment. The full call reads, Prejudice on the basis of gender or sexuality threatens human dignity. Given Anglican polity, and especially the autonomy of provinces, there is disagreement on a and a plurality of views on the relationship between human dignity and human sexuality. Yet we experience the safeguarding of dignity in deepening dialogue. It is the mind of the Anglican communion as a whole that all baptized, believing, and faithful persons, regardless of sexual orientation, are full members of the body of Christ and to be welcomed, cared for, and treated with respect. While many provinces continue to affirm that same-gender marriage is not permissible, the Lambeth Resolution stated that Legitimizing or blessing of same-sex unions cannot be advised. Other provinces have blessed and welcomed same-sex union marriages after careful theological reflection and a process of reception. As bishops, we remain committed to listening and walking together to the maximum possible degree, despite our deep disagreement on these issues. According to Ian Paul, who's a member of the Church of England uh, Evangelical Council, the process for drafting the calls has complicated an already sensitive and divisive issue. He said the document with the calls came uh, came out last minute and a member of the group drafting them said the wording had been changed without their knowledge. So once again, the issue of sexuality is threatening to and has already divided the church. Well, this year's event is being boycotted by theologically conservative primates from Nigeria, Uganda, and Rwanda, the Religion News Service reported. Nothing has really changed about the issues in contention, which broke the fabric of the communion in the first instance. Rather, things are getting worse as the culprits are becoming more daring and persistent in their errors and rebellion. That was the uh, 
a quote from three bishops from these African nations. I should say archbishops uh, from Nigeria, Uganda and Rwanda. And by the way, in Nigeria, Christians are facing harsh and severe uh, persecution. We're not hearing much about it these days in the United States, but among nations experiencing significant persecution, uh, believers there are high on that list. So keep the uh, the church in Nigeria, whatever the denominational title might be, uh, in your prayers, as many are facing harsh persecution. Well, as we mentioned earlier in the program, we all know that it's hot, and the heat advisory has been extended into Saturday. So that added another day. It's rough out there, and we want to give uh, information and resources to manage in the extreme heat for yourself and for others uh, that are in your uh, sphere of influence. Our website, kpdq.com, has links to cooling centers, tips for preventing heat-related illness and public transportation information and more. So if you find someone who is struggling and you want to help get them to a cooling center, there's information on how to do that, where they are, and how public transportation can help. In Multnomah County, you can dial 211 for help. TriMed is offering free rides to cooling centers, and temperatures are expected to stay hotter than normal for the next few days, at least through Saturday. That was the latest update that I had the opportunity to uh, to see. Find helpful links for you and others at kpdq.com, and please keep an eye on your neighbors who may be struggling in this heat without uh, proper air circulation, air conditioning, or whatever is necessary for uh, for you to to stay healthy. Also want to remind you that we have a new program destined for victory with Paul Shepard, now part of our regular program lineup Monday through Friday. That means tonight and tomorrow night at 6 p.m. immediately following the Georgine Rice Show. You'll be informed and inspired by practical down-to-earth teaching blended with humor from Pastor Paul Shepard. Learn more about his show and the ministry at kpdq.com. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Sam Moppin for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. And once again, first hour tomorrow, a conversation with Jeff Tracy, the king of barbecue and the guru of the grill. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.